Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Professional AF. My name is Diana Kander and I am your curiosity curator. This year, I've been on a personal journey of growth, seeking experts to help me work on a long list of areas that I wanted to improve. And my guest today is Leanne Davey. For the past 25 years, Leanne has researched and advised teams on how to achieve high performance. Known as the teamwork doctor, she's worked with hundreds of teams, including 26 global Fortune 500 companies and counting. Today, we're discussing Leanne's book, The Good Fight, about creating productive conflict with your team. You know, conflict has become a dirty word. And the truth is that our teams and organizations require conflict to get things done. But as humans, we avoid conflict and build up something she calls conflict debt by deferring and dodging difficult situations. And our organizations are paying the price, becoming less productive, less innovative, and less competitive. Individuals are paying too, suffering from overwhelming workloads, endless drama, and sleepless nights. Leanne and I are going to discuss how to have healthy, productive disagreements with your team, how to best rebuild a relationship with somebody that you're having tension with, the surprising signs of teams with high trust, and some incredible exercises like the TARP exercise and the U exercise to help you have healthy, productive conflicts with your team. Before we get to the show, please, please take a second to rate the show wherever you listen to it. The ratings help us get guests for the show and show people that are thinking about listening to it for the first time that it's worth their time. Thank you so much. And now please enjoy this amazing conversation with Leanne Davey. Leanne Davey, welcome to the show I want to start right away by asking you to share with us this incredible concept that you've coined as conflict debt. Tell us what conflict debt is. Yeah, so conflict debt is a lot like credit card debt. So that pile of things that we just haven't been able to pay off and the interest compounds and gets us into more and more trouble. So conflict debt is the same idea, but it's with the conversations and discussions and decisions that we really need to get to the other side of, but instead we put them off and similarly kind of pay interest in dread and stress and lack of productivity. So that's conflict debt. And most of us can think of a pretty long list of of things that we need to be discussing or resolving, but we haven't. I like to do this exercise with people where I have them think about a time in the last week where they had any kind of feelings at work. And those feelings could be like confusion, frustration, rage, you know, anything. And then, you know, identify those feelings and everybody has them at at least once a week, maybe once a couple of times a day. And then I say, okay, well, what do you do about that situation? And everybody laughs because they just shove it deep, deep down and, you know, take it out on their dog or their family, but not at work. Yep. Yep. So that's how I actually uh, decided 12 years ago to focus my career on the importance of conflict was a, a guy, a really awesome guy who was the COO of an organization and he had seven kids and he was repressing a whole bunch of conversations he needed to have. And so he, he said he was going home and had no energy for his wife and no energy for his kids because he was using all his energy to kind of suppress these nasty things he was thinking and feeling from work. So I agree. I relate. And it is time that we pay off that conflict debt. None of us can afford it. And I I love the concept, but I want to understand better why you call it debt and how it compounds the same way as debt. So if we we shove those feelings on a weekly basis, it feels like we're pretty high functioning at it in the workplace. Tell me how it manifests itself. So one of the things I would say is people often ask me, you know, should I, shouldn't I just pick my battles, Leanne? Shouldn't I pick my battles? And, and shouldn't I actually repress some things that happen? So one way that we pay interest on that conflict debt 
is let's play a little thought experiment here. So let's imagine that your boss says, um, uh, okay, I've seen the draft presentation. I want you to send it out to all your peers and get their feedback. So you send out the draft presentation and the first message you get back is from that person, the person that just, you know, rubs you the wrong way. And maybe the person that you're resenting today because you suppressed something a little earlier in the week. And when you open the message from them, it says, I caught some mistakes and I have some ideas for how to make it better. And I'll come by at three o'clock. And at three o'clock, you're sitting waiting for a fight and your arms are crossed and your brow is furrowed and research now says that your pupils are dilated and everything when that person walks up to your desk is going to tell them that you're ready for a fight and it's going to be really unpleasant. But if you think about it, uh, if you had received that email from someone you trust and someone you like and someone with whom you weren't in any conflict at, you would have read that email and said, you caught a couple of mistakes. Phew, thanks glad, you know, and, and you have some ideas. Awesome. Come by at three o'clock and you're filling up the jujubes on your desk to, to share at three o'clock. And so the way we pay interest on this conflict debt is we get into trouble in the first place, maybe by picking our battles and choosing not to um, be open about uh, a concern we have. And then we pay interest and it compounds because every interaction we have with that person after that comes through this filter and this lens of uh, baggage about them. And so instead of interpreting the things they do for the rest of the week as helpful, we interpret them as hostile. So that would be one example of how the interest on our conflict debt just makes it bigger and bigger and bigger. And now we've, now we're really resenting the person. Now it's really going to cause friction and some problems on our team. And it may start to interfere with the work all from something that that could have started quite innocently with you thinking that you could pick your battle. Well, so a lot of people that I worked with, they thought that the solution to that situation was to take this person out to lunch and build a mutual respect and trust by getting to know one another better. And are you saying that that's, that's not the best way to do it? So if you are engaging in the issue, if you are creating a connection with the person, yes, that's great. Do that. Um, ideally do it before there's a conflict. So one of the quotes I have in the good fight is don't wait till you're thirsty to dig a well, because it takes a long time to dig a well and building a relationship with someone and building trust with them takes more than one lunch. And so if you wait for that moment where there is a conflict to try and establish trust sort of retroactively, it's not going to work. But in general, investing in having a stronger connection with your colleagues, I think, is a is a really great idea. But also fighting with them, right? Conflict, not not fighting with them, but, you know, airing out the grievances. Is hugely important because when we don't. So my favorite quote about resentment. So resentment is just. Uh, conflict debt that's sort of personal conflict debt. And Nelson Mandela said, resentment is when you swallow poison, hoping the other person will die. And so if you have a grievance against a colleague and you swallow it, you are swallowing poison. You will feel how your pulse races, how you're frustrated, how the narrator in your head keeps interrupting you with not very helpful thoughts. You'll probably be up in the night and struggling to get back to sleep. All these toxic effects, but you will notice that that colleague who you're resenting and frustrated with, they don't change at all because they have no idea that you have this grievance. Um, So you need to air it out to give uh, any possibility at all that the other person is going to change for the better. Okay, so I want to go back to the advice to dig a well before we need the water. And yeah. how do we establish the kinds of relationships where we feel safe and comfortable expressing these feelings that we're having on a regular basis? Yeah, so there's uh, trust exists at sort of four levels that I think about. At the base level, it's just uh, the human connection. So trust in the brain is really just about predictability. So our brains like situations that are predictable to us. We like people where we know how they're going to behave and how they're going to react. So those lunches and the chances to find out a little bit about our colleagues and 
you know, what are the things that have shaped them? What are their experiences? What are their assumptions? Uh, all those sorts of things are going to strengthen the connection. And so those are time well spent. So the, the base level that you can do is help your colleagues to understand you, help them understand why you behave in certain ways, why you focus on, on some things versus others. All of that will strengthen the connection. At the next level, trust is about um, confidence and credibility. And so helping people understand how you're approaching an issue, um, why you're thinking about it the way you're thinking about it, what evidence you're using to make the decisions can help them feel more confident. And if you're trying to do that proactively, asking people, you know, telling them this is how I'm thinking about it and asking them, how would you think about it? What am I missing? And give people a chance to uh, test drive your credibility and and uh, increase their confidence in you. So that's the next level. Reliability is the next level. So even before you have either delivered or or had a track record or not a track record, you can start to do things that will make people have confidence that you're reliable. So you can um, clearly restate the expectations. So you can send an email after a conversation and say, okay, I'm just confirming that these are the three things you're expecting of me and that you're going to do this piece. So that's a good way to get better aligned and show you're reliable. Then you know, halfway through the project, you can say, I just wanted to touch base and let you know this is where I'm at and this is what I've got and just clarifying that I'm going to have this done by Friday. So you can do things proactively to show that you're reliable. And, and then one of the most important things you can do is if something is worrisome and you may not be on the right track, you'll build trust by letting people know ahead of time as opposed to surprising them by by not delivering. So just say, I'm a little worried. We're not where I had hoped to be by Wednesday. Um, I'm, I'm on it. I'm course correcting, but I just wanted a heads up or those sorts of things. And then at the top level, trust is about integrity and the way we can build uh, perceptions of our integrity, even before we have a track record with someone is to be vulnerable and to help them understand what we're thinking about, what we're worried about, those sorts of things to, to come to people with the hardest conversations that demonstrates that, that we have integrity. So all of these things, whether it's creating a connection, helping people uh, understand you and predict how you're going to behave, helping people feel confident in you, demonstrating that you're reliable and that you're going to deliver or showing that you're a high integrity person, there are ways to contribute to all of these things uh, proactively, even before you have a track record. And that's how you start digging the well long before you're thirsty. Okay, so let's say I'm assembling a team. I'm at the very beginning, like the first 100 days. What should we as a team be doing to establish this level of trust with one another? So focus on that connection as the very uh, early thing. So making sure you're getting to know one another and getting to know one another with some stories that that go further back than, you know, I joined the company two years ago. Um, you know, I often ask questions like, uh, what were the three most important inflection points in your life so far? Um, those sorts of things give us a sense of where somebody comes from. You can do it in a fun, frivolous kind of way. You know, what's the, what's the first um, song you ever paid for? And that's even funny because it tends to get into a conversation. I used to ask it as, what was your first 45? And then immediately uh, I realized I was old when people started saying, what's a 45? <laughs> You're like, okay, what's the first CD you ever bought? Or what's the, <laughs> what's the first song uh, you ever downloaded on Spotify or those sorts of things. So those kinds of fun conversations. So in the first hundred days, you want to be creating connections as people having time. And, and there's new research that shows we've, we've always talked about breaking bread together, but it, it looks like there's something that comes from our very animalistic nature that if, if you went to the watering hole with someone and, you know, ate or drank beside someone, it meant that they were safe. It meant that they weren't a threat. So there seems to be something research is now showing sort of profound in eating with people. So in the first hundred days, you want to be finding places to, you know, bring in a pizza and sit and have a casual conversation over food because the hormones that are released help to connect us. So that's a big piece of the puzzle. I would say the other big piece of the puzzle in the first hundred days on a team is getting uh, aligned together around what are we here to do? 
What does the business need from us? What's our purpose? What's the most important thing? And everything around priorities and, and role clarity is super important because if you don't create that kind of clarity, people will come up with their own stories about the purpose of the team. They will create their own set of priorities. And that's where we run off in different directions and we disappoint each other and let people down. So if I could do two things in the first 100 days, talking about what's the business purpose of our team, what are we all here to do, call us to that kind of higher purpose, get aligned around it. And secondly, connect as humans so that our behavior and our quirks become more predictable to our colleagues. Okay. I have many questions about both. First, (laughs) let's start with the having meals together. Should we just allow people to have a comfortable meal together and and talk at a very high level? Or should we be making sure that people are having a more vulnerable discussion by posing questions to the group? Like what, what do you think works better? So I like posing questions to the group, um, but that's not going to surprise people that somebody in my kind of role likes that and others may be rolling their eyes and thinking, I hate that. Um, It's probably the key is getting good questions. So you can buy those little boxes of conversation starters. Uh, I think those are are 10 bucks really well invested and go through and throw out eight out of 10 of them that are silly or trite or not appropriate. Um, but pick the couple that you go, that's really interesting. So, um, you know, I would use conversation starters. I think it helps, but I would keep it to, so one of the questions I really love, uh, is where are all the places in the world you've lived? right? That's a really interesting way to start to see how someone sees the world differently than you do. So that's a fun kind of question. What's your favorite work of fiction or your favorite movie? That's kind of fun. Um, But then there can be more profound kinds of questions like the one I was talking about inflection points. So make it pretty casual. Uh, It can certainly be like pizzas or whatever around a table, but throw in a few questions that get them talking and interacting and hopefully laughing because laughing is always as good when we're bonding. Yeah. And it, it, do you think it's important to having a productive, successful team? I think so. You know, life is hard. Work is incredibly intense these days. And the ability of a team to laugh together and to particularly know that they can laugh when uh, things are kind of blowing up a little bit or when things are hard, uh, it stands a team in really good stead if you know how to laugh together. Would you say that lack of laughter on a team is evidence of conflict debt? Yeah, I, I think it it's commonly the issue if everything is so tense because you are working so hard to make sure nothing breaks through the facade, <laughs> then that's when a team gets really uptight uh, and, and so tight, like a drum, right? Like we, we probably aren't going to see any laughter in that situation. So we would much prefer to see a team that's a little looser and can laugh and poke fun a little bit. And because those are the teams that are going to know that they can, uh, have a hard conversation and get through to the other side of it still as respecting one another and liking one another. Amazing. So this episode is about conflict debt, and I was wondering which one of us pays the conflict bills in this marriage? I think you're making it too complicated. I mean, you pay all the other bills. Is this a way for us to talk about NBKC? Yes. Great. (laughs) (laughs) NBKC doesn't charge you fees for banking. Do you know that banks don't need fees to function, Jason? Big banks just charge them because they can't. And they don't charge fees at NBKC because they don't need to in order to be profitable. And they don't think it makes any sense to charge customers for choosing NBKC to keep their money safe. I'll tell you what else I know. Equal housing lender, FDIC insured. Yes. Zero minimum balance fees. No ATM fees with the money pass system. No foreign transaction fees when you travel. No overdraft fees. No stop payment fees. No incoming domestic wire fees for all your incoming domestic wires. None of those. You're maintaining a lot of eye contact with me. <laughs> you just go to nbkc.com slash Diana to understand exactly how this bank is different. And if you sign up for a new account on that website, you get a box of free swag from the show that is not available for sale. That's professional AF gear. You go to nbkc.com slash Diana to claim your box of free swag. I can't believe that week after week we can come up with new ways that we're excited about the whoop. 
I, I can. <laughs> for those of you that are just hearing about it for the first time, Whoop is the ultimate fitness tracker. It tracks how much sleep you're getting at night, the quality of the sleep, how much rest you're getting during the day, and your level of recovery. If you're just hearing about this for the first time, you have not listened to enough episodes of this podcast, and you should go back and listen to others. There's some there's, excellent episodes. There's some very good episodes. For you to check out, not just the Whoop ads, but mm-hmm. just the episodes themselves. Right. But the thing I want to share this week is I was sleeping really well before. I I was always getting more sleep than you, but I found out thanks to the whoop that I was getting much lower quality sleep, that your REM sleep and your deep sleep was so much higher than mine, even though the quantity of sleep you were getting was much lower. Yeah, I had to make room for all those terrible nightmares all those years. (laughs) I I got too serious too quick, huh? Too serious. Keep going. I have been experimenting with all kinds of lifestyle changes, and the whoop is showing me that I'm making all kinds of progress, both in the quality of the sleep that I'm getting, plus my HRV scores, which is your heart rate variability. I can see myself making progress with the life changes that I'm making, and it feels incredible. She's really nice in the morning, even before she has coffee, so I can tell the difference as well. (laughs) Whoop has provided an offer for our listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code Diana. You just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code Diana at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you live. And don't forget to join the Professional AF Whoop group. It's super fun. We can see each other's numbers. Okay, questions about setting roles and responsibilities, because Mm -hmm. I feel like when people distribute titles, they feel like they have completed this task. And and that feels like really off the mark. I don't know how you feel about that. (laughs) Yeah, so so very far off the mark, especially because titles now are just total BS, right? We're we're giving people titles to kiss their ass and to, you know, make up for the fact that we can't pay them what they deserve. So titles are not helpful in helping us figure out what we should and should not be doing. So you you really want to spend some time and even before we talk about roles as individuals, talking about our mandate together as a team. What does the business need from us? And when I have that conversation with a team, I always start outside the team. What's going on in our industry? What's changing in our society? What are some of the big political or economic changes that are affecting us? How is technology advancing? So I start with conversations about how the world is evolving and from there say, okay, in that context, what does our organization need from this team? And if you're the risk management team, you can imagine that it's going to wow, the the expectations and the demands on you are going to be extremely high. Or if you're the sales team and the entire way customers are buying is evolving, you know, again, it's going to mean big changes for us. So I, I like to start with uh, aligning people around what's changing in the world outside the team so we can understand what that means for uh, the organization's mandate for us as a team. So once you understand what the team's mandate is, now you can get into the question of, and how does that divide up into different unique value we're getting from each of the roles? And so the exercise that I like to do the most, and I, I go through this and give all of the instructions in The Good Fight, is an exercise I call the TARP. Um, and there's a long story that goes with the TARP that comes from um, my family going camping and having to spread out this big plastic TARP over our tent to keep it dry and, and realizing in this process that it's a great metaphor for a team instead of the rowing metaphor where everybody's pulling in the same direction. It's a great metaphor for how great teams actually, the individuals pull in different directions. So the second thing, once you're clear on what the team overall has to do, it's really important to say, hey, and how does the salesperson need to pull on a different rope than the operations person who needs to pull on something very different than the risk person? And if we go through and understand each of the roles and how those roles are meant to be in tension with one another, then we start to normalize productive conflict, which is such an important piece of the puzzle. People start to realize, oh, so 
you know, I just thought you were a jerk, <laughs> but, that, but that's actually your, your job to, um, you know, to kind of put that tension on the discussion. So that would be the second piece of, of role clarity that I think is critical. And that would be a, as soon as you can possibly answer those two questions, the mandate of our team, and then the unique value of each role on the team and how those roles are in tension. Those should be very early days questions that you answer. I love the idea of the TARP and how everybody has kind of different constituencies that they're representing in their individual roles. Should we also include, I I feel like I've heard a ton of terms, like what people are responsible for, what they're going to be held accountable for, like all these different terms. Is that part of the racy model? Yeah. Um, What goes on the TARP? Basically. Yeah. So uh, what I put is three things. So I say for each role, what's the unique value that that role is bringing? So I tell the story in the book of a team at a big food manufacturing company and the sales guy, the unique value of the sales guy is certainly to differentiate the product to create, you know, a really compelling story value proposition for the customers so that they're really interested. And so that's the unique value of the salesperson. The second question is, what is the stakeholder that that role is really advocating for and paying attention to? So in the case of sales, it's the buyer, right? That's the person that they're thinking a lot about. And then the third question is, what's the tension that that role is obliged to put on decisions and discussions in the team? And for the salesperson, it's usually about um, differentiation. Like how do we make a, a product that's better, faster, cheaper, sexier, something like that. So you answer those three questions, the unique value of the role, the stakeholder that the, the role is advocating for and the tension the role puts on the team. But as you answer it for sales, you then switch over to the operations person. So the salesperson is really focused on, you know, is it, is it um, exciting? Is it valuable to the client? Then you go to the ops guy and you say, okay, what's your unique value? And the ops person says, well, my unique value is to make sure that it's efficient and it's consistent and predictable. That's how we keep our factories really uh, operating at full capacity and how we get healthy margins. And, and as soon as the ops person starts to say that, you realize why she and the salesperson are having some issues. You say, okay, what's your stakeholder? And the, the ops stakeholder is more going to be the supply chain people and those sorts of things. And then what's the tension? Well, the tension is I'm trying to make it more stable, more consistent. And so all of a sudden you've started a conversation about how if the salesperson is doing his job well, he's putting a lot of tension on the discussions about how do we make this different, um, customized, cheaper, faster, better. And the operations person, if she's doing her job, she's putting a lot of tension on the conversation around can we make it more consistent? Can we, you know, sell more things that use the same packaging line so we don't have to change out the line because changing out the line is super expensive. And, and so this process of going around role by role by role and answering those three questions, the unique value of the role, what, what that role's superpower is and what they're paying attention to. Secondly, who they're thinking about, who they're advocating for, who their stakeholder is. And thirdly, What's the tension they're obliged to put on the discussion? As you answer those questions, people start to realize that what they have experienced as friction and experienced as wearing them down is actually productive tension that's helping us make the whole thing bigger, that's helping us optimize our discussions and decisions. And so I I come to this sort of punchline at the end of the exercise to say, so you thought that conflict was the antithesis of good teamwork when actually it's the purpose of good teamwork. Um, And it's amazing how once you give people a language to talk about, I'm just pulling on my rope here. And this is, you know, remember this, I'm obliged to say this. When you give them this language, then you normalize conflict and it just makes it so much easier. It stops being so personal and it starts being part of what I'm expected to do to do a good job on my team. What an incredible tool. When do I use this? Uh, other than when, you know, my team's bringing you in to do a day of exercises. Like yeah. when as a team leader should I deploy the tarp? 
Yeah. So uh, I tell people to do the TARP as soon as you can. And so if as soon as it may be that that's, you know, two years into a really gnarly dysfunctional team and that's as soon as you can, great, it's fine. Go ahead. Uh, And what you'll find is when you do the TARP exercise, when there are some frictions on the team, people, there will be a lot of, oh, there'll be a lot of realization uh, that this explains how they're feeling. Um, if you can do it proactively in the first hundred days that a team is coming together, it will sort of inoculate you against having had those interpretations of one another as jerks and annoying and frustrating. So do it as soon as you can, but there's no time when it's too late uh, to, to have a conversation using the TARP. Do you think it's more unhealthy if a team is fighting all the time or if they're just fake nice to each other, all the, the opposite of fighting. So if those are my two options, both of those are completely unproductive. And so I'd rather have unproductive and, um, and not painful or hurtful to individuals. But those are both unproductive. So what we want is a team that most of the time is clear on what the organization is counting them, on them to do. Most of the time is clear on these productive tensions being a part of the situation. And then rarely and sometimes when there's something worth fighting for that they fight and they get to the other side of it. But if I have to choose between dysfunctional because we just fight and never resolve anything or dysfunctional because we leave everything in our conflict debt and we never resolve anything, well, you know, it's probably less stressful to be on the bobblehead team full of people who just, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> That's probably better, but they're both bad, um, bad options. How often do you think we should be having conflict on our team? Like, what's a good rule of thumb? Because it's not, it's not debate all the time. That doesn't sound like it would feel good. Yeah, I, I think what we want to do is have uh, very low-impact things that I would call conflict, conflict with a small C, very frequently. And so when I say that, uh, you know, some of what conflict looks like is somebody sharing an idea and you saying, that's so interesting. I think that's really going to help our sales. I think customers are going to love that. How is it going to play out in operations? And, And we might not think of that or label that as conflict. But putting tension on ideas so we get out of this habit of just rubber stamping things or trying to keep things harmonious all the time, if we can get into conflict as little, tiny, high-frequency, low-impact tensions, then that's the healthiest thing we we can possibly do. So you want to have those kind of tensions in every discussion. But what's great is once you practice that and once people are accustomed to, oh, that's so interesting that you say that, you know, what what data are you basing that on? When it becomes okay to challenge somebody's opinion, um, looking for the data, when uh, it becomes okay to say, I think that's going to be a hit with this stakeholder. What about this stakeholder? Or what are the implications of this? When, when it becomes normalized to have these kind of tensions on our ideas, uh, that should be something you're doing kind of all day, every day. Um, in terms of when does it come to a head and when do we get to a point where we just can't come to a solution, uh, it's feeling really personal. Um, you know, if that happens every couple of weeks or once a month, that's probably okay. If it's happening more than that, where we're losing touch with what the substantive issue is, we're losing touch with the fact that this is productive and healthy and we're feeling it and experiencing it personally as friction, I I wouldn't want that happening much more than kind of once a month or so. But it's going to happen, right? We're all running so hard. We're so invested. So if, if we get into a fight at work and somebody ends up in tears or somebody ends up yelling you know, all I say to people is that's a really good sign that they're all in because I'll tell you who will never yell and who will never cry is somebody who doesn't care, somebody who's disengaged. So when we are running so hard doing things that we care so much about in a world where it's so hard to make traction, we shouldn't 
um, take it as our standard that we never get into a fight. Jason, what do you want to say about balance the superfood shot this week? Uh, I ate a purple one today. That's so funny. I have to. Our kid has been sick for many, many days. And <laughs> we're both sneaking as many purples as we can. That's the immunity blend for those of you just tuning in to the balance uh, ads. The superfood shot is half of your daily uh, fruits and vegetables all in a single serving. And there's three different flavors. And each one has a different assortment of fruits and vegetables. And there's one that's just the green blend. It's like goodness in a little shot. And then there's the immunity blend, which has been so good, so far so good for both you and me. Now when I eat vegetables, I'm like, this is so inefficient. It takes, <laughs> it takes forever. I can shoot this. <laughs> and then there's also the uh, turmeric blend, which is the anti-inflammation uh, shot that you can take. People can get their shots for 30% off uh, thanks to the sponsorship on the show. You just go to superfoodshot.co, that's C-O. And when you're checking out, you type in Diana uh, during your checkout. That's superfoodshot.co. And you enter keyword Diana at checkout to get a whole number of shots just extra, extra throughout the day. If you're not getting the fruits and vegetables that you need, if you need a little extra boost with a sick kid around the house, it's amazing. They taste good too. Jason, you know, I'm not the best at idioms, but this, I think the saying goes, when the conflict gets high, you, you take it to the mattresses. That's pretty close. Yeah. And a great segue to talk about Purple Mattress. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the founders of Purple, there are these two brothers and they have been developing cushioning technology for 30 years on things like medical beds and wheelchairs. And so you're you're getting, really, I mean, when you combine the two, you're getting 60 years of cushioning technology learning. They nerd out on cushioning. Yeah. That's so cool. That's their thing. Yeah. I wouldn't want the guys who make my mattress to like nerd out on air travel. I would want them to nerd out on cushioning. They are offering you a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. The mattress is backed by a 10-year warranty, and they offer free shipping and returns. And the best part, they come and set it up in your house and take your old mattress. You're going to love Purple. And right now, our listeners get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts that you get on the website. You just text Diana, D-I-A-N-A, to 84888. The only way to get the free pillow is to text Diana to 84888. Your purchase gets you a purple pillow. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> That's Diana to 84888. It feels like the advice that you're giving is to go from statements, which is what we usually use in meetings, to questions of some kind. Like that's the trick to, to making that switch. It really is the trick. And if you're going to make statements, speak the other person's truth with your statements as opposed to your own truth first. So, you know, if somebody's saying, you know, I think that this is how we need to roll this out to our customers, um, you can make a statement that says, okay, so for you, you know, the way to roll this out to customers is X. But then there's an opportunity to say, tell me uh, about your thinking. How did you get there? What makes you think that that's the best way to go? What would be the benefits of that? So getting into questions. Um, and what we tend to do is we, we make statements and we make assertions uh, about what is right or what is true or our truth. And that's where we get into big trouble. So definitely many, many, many more questions is a great technique. Um, and where there are going to be statements, use your statements to validate the other person as opposed to kind of assert your position on somebody else. Your book is filled with incredible exercises from page to page. In fact, I don't think I've read, I read a lot of books for the show, and I don't think I've read one with more exercises than the ones that you offer, which is amazing. Besides the TARP example, what's like the next best, best exercise that you think everybody you work with benefits from? Yeah, so the other one, now people are realizing how I am not a marketer because the other one has got an even worse name than the TARP. It's called the U, and it's simply an exercise that helps us figure out in a department 
what is the unique value that different levels um, need to add and how do we get that value added at the right time so that it's added proactively instead of people adding value after work is done. So the stupid story that I tell in the book to try and make an example of this is I tell the story of, you know, you're at the end of a team meeting and your boss just tells you to like, wait, wait a couple minutes because there's some um, emails come down from on high and we got to have a charity bake sale. Somebody's decided that we're going to have a bake sale. And so the boss says, okay, I need people to volunteer. And so you totally begrudgingly put up your hand and say, fine, you know, I'll bake for the bake sale. And you, you know, you work until 10 o'clock and then you look madly for what's in your pantry that you can turn into something for the bake sale and you realize that you've got what you need to make your famous carrot zucchini muffins. And so you whip them together. You're exhausted. The last thing you needed was to be baking for a bake sale. The next morning you come in and you're feeling so proud of yourself, your golden topped, beautiful, crispy carrot zucchini muffins. And your boss takes one look at them and goes, muffins? Ew, nobody's going to buy muffins at a bake sale. <laughs> you're you're totally deflated. And there's, you know, John who's brought the sugar-covered donuts he bought at the store. But, you know, John is more popular with the boss than you. And the boss goes, like, goes to the vending machine and grabs a pack of M&Ms and starts shoving them into your muffin and you're kind of heartbroken. And this happens all the time where um, the boss short changes, giving you context, helping you understand what good looks like, uh, and we don't set good expectations, then we want to look like we're smart and we're on the ball, so we don't ask questions. We just set to work and we, we do things. And then when we bring our work back, it's not what people were expecting. They're frustrated. We're upset with them for not being clear. So a lot of conflict in organizations comes from how poorly we set expectations and how different levels in the organization aren't clear that there is value they need to add to set everybody else up to do work effectively. And if they add it before the fact, it's a lot less painful and a lot more efficient than if they try and add it after the fact. So the you exercise is a great exercise you can do with your team to help have a conversation about expectations and what you need and, and what does good look like and all those sorts of things. And, and how do we have that conversation at the right time? So, cause I always say like, if you give your boss uh, the batter to taste the batter, it's a lot easier to add M&Ms to, to batter than it is to add it once the thing is baked. So uh, that's another exercise that I just love when we do that exercise with teams, because the leaders often realize that They've been paying attention to the wrong stuff. They've been kind of micromanaging and they haven't been adding the value they need. And, and they do realize that I have had bosses admit that, you know, okay, I, I believe I did shove some M&Ms into Bob's project just last week. <laughs> so that's a, a great exercise that the teams can use as well. I've definitely met some M&M shovers. I, I, I too, probably <laughs> carry around a bag of M&Ms if I was being honest about it. And we all do. And, you know, the you exercise just helps you have that sort of moment of like, oh, I've totally done that. Right. And because it, it hasn't been clear what I needed to provide up front in terms of, you know, envisioning what I'm looking for more clarity on what good looks like, what's in scope, what's out of scope, what are the thresholds. The other thing that the you exercise helps you get at is to clarify with people, here are the situations where I need you to come to me. So don't try and handle this on your own. Don't surprise me with this. So it's really helpful for that. Um, but also to clarify for other people who are coming to you with everything to be able to say this kind of stuff, I expect you to handle that on your own. You know, the one we all get frustrated about as managers is when somebody comes to us because an issue involves another department. And instead of just calling that person and talking about it, they come to us and we go to our boss and they go to their peer and they go to their guy. And, you know, six weeks later, we've finally got the issue back around to where we need it. So the you exercise helps you clarify. This is the kind of stuff that I need you to escalate and I need to know about, and I don't want to be surprised. And this is the kind of stuff I need you to start handling on your own. And I don't want to be engaged in this and I expect you to handle it. So it's a, it's such a great exercise. So many different things come out of that, but uh, definitely we, we expose some of the M&M shovers and, and we come up with a much more humane solution of having the having the boss be engaged in picking the recipe and tasting the batter so that, you know, once the effort goes in and it's baked, it's, it's good to go. How often should we be conducting a you 
exercise? So the U is another exercise, just like the TARP, that you can do once sort of overall for your team. But with teams that I work with, they create a, like a stack of them that's in the meeting room or people who work virtually keep the electronic document and they bring it up for certain projects. So I was working with one team and we had done the U and then all of a sudden they got the directive from above that there was going to be a 10% cost cut come, come whipping through the organization. So what we did is we grabbed a U template And we just said, okay, so let's just use the U to figure out this 10% reduction. So the first question is, you know, what do we need to clarify with our bosses, the layer above us, so that we know what we're doing? And so there were some important questions they put in there. All right, what are we going to focus on? And this was a, a leadership team. And so they said, look, there's two things. One, we need to focus on the narrative, making sure that we've got the right story. Because, you know, if we start to say hiring freeze, somebody's going to interpret that as, Uh, you know, I can't add any new requisitions and somebody's going to interpret it as I can't fill existing requisitions. So we, we have to, number one, talk a lot about the narratives. And number two, because we're a leadership team, we've got to look at if one department is, is requesting a 10% cut and that has a carry on impact across departments, that's the stuff that only we can see. So they clarified and then they went on to, okay, what are we going to expect the layer below us to figure out? And so we actually used the U live in the moment to clarify what everybody needed to pay attention to. So both the TARP and the U are great tools to use once to learn how to use them and to use them for the sort of overall mandate of the team and the roles. But they're great in the moment. Say, oh, hey, this is a, a cross-functional project. Let's grab a TARP template and just talk about, you know, what rope is everybody pulling on? Who, who all needs to be in this? And what's the unique perspective we need them to be representing? What stakeholder have they got? So both of the tools are great as ongoing tools you can use for, for specific instances. That's, that's awesome. Let me ask, I'm curious, uh, is there a way that people misapply your work or they read the title of the book and they're like, I think I got it. Is, is there something that, <laughs> that you would like to clarify about your work? I haven't seen anyone misuse the work. So there's two primary audiences for the book. Um, the first are the conflict avoidant people like me. Because as I told you, I wrote this book because I needed to read it because I don't like conflict. And so for those people, the book is really to teach them that some things are worth fighting for. And when they read it and they read about conflict debt, they get it. They immediately go, oh, you're right. You know, there's things that are affecting our productivity. They're eroding our trust. They're creating stress for me. And there are just some things that, uh, that are worth fighting for. The other audience that the book is for is for the people who thought that, that any fight was a good fight uh, and who are doing a lot of collateral damage with how they fight. And the book then is a, a handbook about the language, the techniques, the words to have conflict productively. And so people seem to get that and they get which, which category they are in, <laughs> whether they're the ones who need to um, start to have a fight and, and change their mindset. So I, I think the reason I like the title, The Good Fight, is the, the most obvious mistake is people. And, and I see there's a fantastic book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. It's a really great book. We have talked to Kim on the show. Yeah, so she's amazing. And I love the book. And, and she was one of the people who, who endorsed The Good Fight. Um, the problem is the people who see that book and only read the title. And they read Radical Candor, and then they just go out and they blast other people. And they're like, well, I'm just being radically candid. I'm like, well, clearly you didn't read the book then. So thankfully, the good fight people get right from the title that, you know, yes, some things are worth fighting for, but it needs to actually be a good fight. So I haven't seen too many people um, use it as an excuse to be a bully or use it as an excuse to continue to try and keep things harmonious and, and keep piling up more conflict at. So uh, I think people who pick up the book, they, they get it. I love it. And it's actually easier to apply than radical candor. I mean, radical candor is about, you know, how to cause short-term pain for long-term gain by, yeah. by being honest. And this is just about asking better questions when inside you're screaming something to to formulate that in the form of a question to really yeah, get yeah. curious um, instead of any other feeling. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the reason I wrote chapter six, which is conflict strategies for nice people, is I think people wanted ways and words. And in chapter six, as you're saying, like I, I get pretty specific about here, say it this way, because I think people often understand that, okay, I got to get out of my conflict data or else I'm going to declare bankruptcy here. I'm, I'm getting in trouble. Uh, and then they just can't imagine or picture themselves or how they could say it in a way that is still kind and that they wouldn't be a jerk. And so that's what I really wanted to get into is the how, how do I say it in a way that's not going to really be painful, that's actually going to be remarkably not painful. Uh, and so the techniques from chapter six, that's the feedback people get, uh, give me, they'll be like, it didn't even feel like we were having conflict. Perfect. Like that's my goal. <laughs> if it can not feel like conflict, but instead just feel like this habit where it's really low impact and, and we're doing it all the time. That's the healthiest we can possibly get. Low impact frequent conflict. That's the goal. Yep. Leanne, where can people find out more about you and your work and what's coming up next for you? Yeah, the best place to find me is just at leannedavy.com, which um, the great thing about having really hard spelling of your name is you get your name as a URL. Um, and Jane Smith would probably be hard to get. Leanne Davies easy, except it's just hard to spell. So it's L-I-A-N-E. D-A-V-E-Y.com. And there, I also have a YouTube channel full of videos on, you know, how to deal with the passive aggressive person and how to repair trust and how to speak truth to power. So if people like the video version of it, my YouTube channel is also Leanne Davy. But either one of those places, uh, there was lots and lots and the good fights available pretty much everywhere. Awesome. We will link to all of that in the show notes. And I am so grateful for your time and sharing your expertise and all these amazing exercises. Thank you so much. My huge pleasure. So nice to meet you, Diana. Jesse, do you ever worry that you and I don't have enough conflict in our <laughs> lives after that episode? No, because of the TPI. Oh, because of our TPIs. We let the pressure out. Yep. It was such a good episode. You know, you know, I've heard before, like couples that don't have fights are in trouble. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it applies apparently in the work environment. All relationships. This, this information, you know, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded the episode and I've been using it in our daily work and especially the TARP exercise has been just such a great framework for how to think about this stuff. It's amazing. It takes the personal relationship out of it and that you're not taking things personal. You're just like, this is their job. This is my job. Here are our responsibilities. And we're supposed to disagree. In fact, I've been thinking yeah. about it like if everybody uh, was a part of one event at work, they might have had extremely different perceptions of mm -hmm. what happened and how it went and having those kinds of conversations and not just assuming that however you perceive things is how everybody else is perceiving them yeah. can go a long way to keeping people from having all kinds of feelings. Yeah. And then the importance of having a core set of ideals around this is what we agree on. This is the purpose. And then we can disagree on all these little small things. I love it. So you don't think I should just start conflicts? <laughs> we, it's, not, it's not a good idea. We asked enough like... <laughs> great questions. <laughs> all right. Fine, Jesse. <laughs> Well, uh, I hope you will join this conversation. Why don't they vote? Why don't we have the listeners vote on whether we should have more conflicts at work? Uh, on our Professional AF Podcast Insiders Facebook group, uh, we have a lot of great discussions that go on there and people post their most professional AF uh, looking photos. I love it. I am Diana Kander here with Jesse Jacob, reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. We'll talk to you soon.